take your Bible this morning to the book of Jonah, and we are continuing our journey through this powerful little book, and as we have already noted in our series, um, the story highlights God's radical grace, and it spotlights His scandalous mercy. And um, our text this morning, verse 17, is probably the shortest scene in the book. We, we've kind of been looking at the book as a carefully constructed story that has a plot. And we are in one of the shortest scenes in the book. It's one verse long. And so let me read the verse to you, and then I want to kind of lay out for you where we're headed this morning in our text. The Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. And then if we want to kind of bookend the back end of that, uh, we might end up with verse 10 of chapter 2, where we kind of see the end of this little scene, and the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah up on dry land. Now, what do we do with a bridge scene? That's really what this is. We have been tracing the story of Jonah, and there have been already three major acts in the drama. The first of them is the act where God speaks to Jonah and introduces this stunning concept of radical grace and scandalous mercy to his faithful servant, the prophet Jonah. And it stunned Jonah. You know, most of us are not scandalized by grace. We're really not shocked much by mercy. And maybe that's because we've grown up around those ideas our whole life. You know, if you've been in church for very long, you've heard about the love of God, you've heard about the mercy of God, you've certainly heard about the grace of God, you sing about it, you hear sermons on it, you read texts about it, and so there's very little about mercy that bothers us, and there's very little about grace that scandalizes us. And maybe it's because we've been in church our whole life that we don't ever come to a place where Jonah is. And that's why Jonah is so disconcerting to us. Because all of a sudden, God decides to show mercy in a radical way. And it scandalizes this prophet. And that really sort of is the heart of this first scene. Jonah is is shocked. He's scandalized. And he's deeply offended, not just at the grace that is about to be shown, but he's deeply offended that God would do this to the point that he resigns his commission as a prophet. He renounces his place in uh, God's God's people, his part in God's people, and, and his presence in God's nation. And he removes himself from all the places on the planet in his day where God had visibly presented himself, where he had given the majestic temple that Solomon had built, the place where he had established the Davidic dynasty, the place where he had established a nation that would be ruled by a wisdom that had come from above, the Torah of God. And Jonah says, if this is what you're going to do, I'm done. And he removes himself from that place. And we watched him trot down to the port of Joppa. And uh, and scene two opens as Jonah boards a ship 
that is headed to Tarshish. And we noted that Tarshish was 2,000 miles in the wrong direction from where God had told Jonah to go. It was the Timbuktu of their day. And we watch Jonah go down there, and we watch Jonah go down into the ship. And actually, by the time it's all said and done, we watch Jonah go down into the very bottom of that ship, and then we watch him lie down on a pallet and go into a sleep. And so from the moment we saw Jonah pack up his stuff and leave, he is on a journey down. And so we end scene two with Jonah on board a ship. And then scene three takes place. And we looked at scene three last week, and we noted that while Jonah is down below deck sleeping, there is a fierce storm raging in the ocean around him, and the ship that he is on is about to break up. The the tempest is so fierce, the waves are so large, that he is about to drown with all the sailors on board. And so what we discover there is that God is at work. The sailors who are caught in the frenzy of the storm uh, begin to realize something. They realize this is no ordinary storm. They had been seasoned sailors. These were no uh, landlubbers who just decided one weekend to grab a cruise to Tarshish. They had been transporting goods and resources across that ocean probably for all of their careers. And all of a sudden they realize this is no ordinary storm. And as they begin to pray and cry out to their gods, nothing happens. There is no help. There is no avail. And so they decide they need to find out the cause of all of this. And so they break out the one means that a Hebrew prophet would understand for divining truth. They break out the lots. And sure enough, the lot inevitably and unerringly lands on God's prodigal prophet, Jonah. And so Jonah now stands on the deck, and he makes a confession. He confesses who he is. He confesses what he has done, and he confesses who the Lord is. He confesses that the Lord he serves and the Lord he fears is the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land, and those are two locations the sailors are particularly concerned about at that moment. And it's interesting that by the end of the scene, Jonah's confession has actually led these sailors to a place where they have turned away from their idols to worship and serve the living God. This is exactly what Paul described happened when he came to Thessalonica and he preached and confessed the truth about God. And they turned from their idols to worship and serve the living God and to wait for the coming of of his son from heaven. You have an Old Testament version of that happening in scene three. But Jonah has a decision to make, doesn't he, now that the truth is on the table? He has to decide whether he is going to repent and submit or whether he is going to resist and perish. And by the time we got to the end of the scene last week, we saw that Jonah's self-righteous indignation, his offense at what God was going to do, was so deep that he would rather perish than repent. And the scene closed with Jonah being hurled over the side like God hurled that wind on the ocean. God hurled that storm in the path of the sea. Now Jonah himself is hurled 
into the deep. And just when things couldn't seem to be getting any worse for Jonah, a great sea creature, a great fish, appears, swallows him up, and heads downward to the bottom of the ocean. And for all practical purposes, that is the end of Jonah. Jonah is so far down, no one knows where he is, not his family, not his people, not the sailors, and if the truth be told, probably not even Jonah. All he knows is that what he expected didn't happen. He expected for God's mercy to be given to Israel, and God completely changed the game plan. He got on a ship, and he expected that it was going to go somewhere, and God, again, completely changed the game plan, and he decided that he was going to perish, and once again, God intervenes and changed the game plan. Has God ever done that in your life? God ever changed the game on you? Man, you were so convinced this was going to happen. You were so convinced, and all of a sudden, everything is different. God changes the game for Jonah. But before we get there, we have to ask a question. Who is going to rescue and deliver Jonah from the depths of the ocean? I mean, here's Jonah, and and of course, we know the whole story, so we're like, don't worry, it's going to be great. But if you didn't know the story, you, you would have thought... Jonah is absolutely done for. There is, there is no coming back from where he has gone. I mean, how do we even know where to look? How do we even know how to get to where he's at? This is humanly impossible. There isn't any human help that can reach where Jonah is, and there isn't any hope for what will come of Jonah. There is no help, and there is no hope, and yet... By the end of the story, God has done more than just rescued Jonah from drowning in the deep. He has rescued Jonah from Jonah. And that's really what God's up to. So I I try to think of how Jonah must have felt. Like, what do you do when you're so far down and you're in so deep, there's no way back, there's no light, there's no hope, and you're wondering if anybody knows where you are. And I came across... A story, and I want to show you a clip here in just a minute. But on June 23rd, 2018, just a few years ago, in Thailand, in northern Thailand, 12 boys on a soccer team, aged between 11 and 16, and their coach decided to go exploring a cave system one afternoon after soccer practice. It was the birthday of one of the boys, and they decided that maybe they would go inside the cave system walk all the way as far as they could go, and then maybe celebrate his birthday inside the caves. It was monsoon season, and so they went into the caves and walked about two and a half miles into the cave system, and while they were in the cave system, a torrential monsoon downpour took place outside and flooded the cave system, trapping the boys deep underground. They were trapped in that cave system in the darkness for 10 days. After 10 days, two British divers finally reached the place where they were trapped. It would be eight more days before the boys and the coach were finally rescued from their ordeal. The rescue effort involved more than 10,000 volunteers. A hundred divers and more than a hundred government agencies were all involved in the attempt to get these boys out. 
by the time the boys were rescued, 18 days had passed since they entered the cave system. More than 1 billion liters of water had been pumped out of that cave system. Millions of dollars had been spent, and the life of one rescuer had been lost. I wondered as I read the story what it felt like for the boys, and I found a clip. National uh, Geographic actually made a a documentary on this, and I want to show you about a two-minute clip because I want, and, and as you watch the clip, I want you to imagine what it must have felt like for Jonah to be in a dark place at the bottom of the ocean where nobody knew where he was. These boys at least knew that people were looking. And sure enough, 10 days in, they're found. But in Jonah's case, nobody was looking. And I want you to get a sense of what it feels. So let's watch this clip, and then I'll come back, and we'll look into this text together. right now out of Thailand. Rescue teams are working through the night to save 12 boys and their coach trapped inside a cave. The monsoon had come early. The conditions in the cave were impossible. There was a very strong feeling that the children couldn't be still alive. We need expert cave divers out here. The Thai Navy SEALs put everything they had into it but only this group of people who do it as a weekend hobby has those skills. I was thinking, this this has actually got our name all over it. You couldn't see your hand in front of your face. In a bigger space, sliding through, and then repeating again and again. How, how many of you all we look into each other's faces thinking we may be the only ones that ever see them. Finding the boys was the easy part. They didn't have a clue how to get those kids out. We didn't think it was possible to dive the children out. We came up with the actual logistical plan. I told him that's a horrible idea. And then Rick said, what if it's the only idea? We were brutally honest. We promised multiple fatalities. It's about controlling your emotions and your fear. Panic is death in the cave. My mind was on overdrive. Oh my God, am I going to be good enough? If they die, it's going to die. die. Everyone will die. I told the guys, this is a one-way trip. Once you start, you cannot stop. Believe. There were not 10,000 people looking for him. But there was one. And that one knew exactly where he was. And you may feel sometimes like those boys in the cave. You may have found yourself sometimes by your own doing in a place that there isn't any human help, there isn't any hope, and you wonder if anybody is even looking for you. And I want you to know this morning that the same God who is looking for Jonah in the belly of that great fish is the same God who looks for you. 
and he finds you, and he rescues you. So as we look at our text this morning, I want to make sure we don't miss what God put there for our encouragement. There are lessons Jonah needed to learn that he couldn't learn any other way. And there are lessons we can learn from Jonah's experience this morning. And so I want you to notice as you look at verse 17, God's merciful intervention. There is a merciful intervention that takes place in the life of someone who's offended at God over mercy. Jonah is angry at God because God wants to show mercy. And here at the very beginning of the verse, we find God doing the very thing Jonah is upset about. He gives Jonah mercy. And so the text is very clear about this. Look at verse 17. Your text, like mine, says it this way, And the Lord... But if we could read it the way the Hebrew text reads, it's actually, but Yahweh, but God. And so there is an intervention that happens when all human resource is powerless and all human hope has been abandoned. God gets involved. And what we discover as we go back through our mind, God has been involved all along. This is not the first time sort of that God steps in the scene. God has been involved all along the way. And while Jonah has been running away from God, God has been pursuing Jonah. It is God who hurled the wind upon the sea and the storm in Jonah's path. It is God who directed the lots to point to Jonah. It was God who moved in the sailors' hearts to row hard to the shore. It was God who fought against them as the sea refused to be calm for them. And now God is involved again because God is committed to Jonah. He's not about to to abandon Jonah to Jonah's sinful stubbornness. Even when Jonah's sinful stubbornness was fueled by self-righteous indignation. Think about why Jonah was running You know, sometimes you and I run from God because of some sinful lust we want to pursue or some some practice, some sinful, evil wickedness that has ensnared us. Jonah's running was actually fueled by self-righteous theology. He was running from God because he believed something. He believed that God should not do something God determined to do because of a theological assumption that he embraced about Israel. And he knew that if God carried through with what he was about to do, that it was going to be disastrous for God's people. And so Jonah, in self-righteous indignation, decided he wanted nothing to do with God's will. You know, sometimes you and I decide we want nothing to do with God's will because we don't like where God's will is taking us and what God's will might mean for us. And that's exactly where Jonah is. And God says, I'm not going to abdicate my control over your life. I, I'm not going to abandon you to your self-will, but we, I'm not going to abdicate my control over your life. Jonah was free to make choices. But if you notice something about Jonah's choices, the further away he got from God, the more restricted his choices were. Jonah decided, I'm I'm going down to Joppa. I'm going on a ship. And once he was on a ship, 
His choices got very, very narrow. And then he got up on deck, and the lots were cast, and Jonah's choices got even more restricted. He could either repent and live, or he could continue to resist and perish. And once he made that choice, and he went over the side, his choices got even more narrow. He was swallowed up by a great fish and taken down to the bottom of the ocean where he had no choice left. You know, that's what our will does to us. We can choose to disregard God's word. We can choose to disobey God's will. And we can think in our minds that we're casting off God's will for our life. We're casting off God's rule over us. But what happens is those choices reduce our freedom more and more and more and more until one day we wake up and our life is such a mess and we are in such a strait that we actually have no more choices. And that's where Jonah was. And God says, I'm not going to abdicate my control over your affairs and then I'm not going to adjust my plans to show mercy. Jonah, you aren't going to manipulate me by your thinking. You're not going to manipulate me by your acting. In Jonah's mind, in order to show mercy to the Ninevites, somebody has to go and preach, and I'm the person God has tasked to that. So if I don't go, then they won't repent. And if they won't repent, then God has to judge, which is what I think he should do. So that's what I'm going to do. And God says, I'm not going to adjust my plans to show mercy. I can show mercy whenever I want to show it. I can show mercy however I want to show it. Jonah, I can show mercy where I want to show it. And I can show mercy to whoever I want to show it to. And right now, Jonah, the one who needs mercy most in the book is you. And I'm going to show mercy to you. You know, sometimes in our self-righteous indignation, we can actually be the hardest heart in the equation. Jonah actually had the hardest heart in the book. Think about that. Pagan sailors, idolaters in chapter 1, heathen idolaters, cruel oppressors in the Assyrian nation in Nineveh. You talk about hard brutality. You, You talk about immoral activity. You talk about idolatrous worship. All of it. But the hardest heart in the book is a prodigal prophet named Jonah. You know, think about how we think about life. There are people that maybe we judge. Those people, I can't believe God tolerates those people. That group over there, I can't understand how they even are on the planet still. How in the world could a holy God tolerate that? And God says, you know what? Actually, a person most in need of mercy and the the person most in need... Of, of, of work in, in their spiritual life is you. This is where Jonah is. God says, I will not adjust my plans. And so there is this merciful intervention that leads to God's sovereign direction. The God who intervenes does it by directing his creation. Jonah's already said earlier in the text that he worships and fears the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. And so God appoints one of his creation to do a very specific task. 
the word appoint in the text is an interesting word. It's the word that, that you would do if you were the owner of a vast amount of resources. And you would allocate some of those resources to a particular project. Or you might direct people that worked in your employment to a particular project or to a particular task. And this is what God does. He looks down on his creation and there in the ocean is one of his resources, one of his creatures, and he gives that creature a task. And the task is to rescue Jonah, to bring Jonah back. That fish becomes the means of God's divine deliverance. Jonah needs to be delivered from death, but he also needs to be delivered from impenitence and disobedience. And so God said to that fish, I have a job for you. I have a mission for you. I'm allocating your time to a particular project. What's the project? It's project prodigal profit. He needs to be delivered. He needs to be delivered from death and from disobedience. But it's also the place of divine instruction. God said to that great fish, you're going to become a portable classroom because I have some lessons to teach Jonah. And the very best place to, uh, to teach that lesson is through distance learning. And we're going to do it in your classroom. And so the belly of that fish became a spiritual classroom where Jonah had to learn about self-righteousness and repentance and mercy and restoration and deliverance. And by the way, God has classrooms for us. It may not be a fish. But trust me, when we set our will against God and we become so self-righteous in our own eyes, God says, I have a classroom for you. And I'm going to put you in that classroom and and you aren't going to get out for recess. You're going to have to be in that classroom because I have important lessons to teach you. And so this fish becomes a means of deliverance and instruction, but it also becomes divine transportation. It becomes God's own little bed and breakfast for Jonah. Jonah is inside the fish and God is going to teach Jonah. And all the while God is teaching Jonah, Jonah is being transported And he's being transported back to the land of the living. God is going to use this fish to transport Jonah so that Jonah can transport mercy. God is always on the move in our lives like this. Now, that brings up a big question, at least in my mind. Why in the world would God do this for a prodigal prophet who has been so insistent in his own way? I mean, Jonah has... Uh, decided, and he has willfully chosen. And all along the way, God has been giving him opportunities. God has been putting things in his pathway. And Jonah's like, nope, I, I, I want nothing to do with this. This is wrong. What you're about to do to the Ninevites, I want no part of. And finally, at the very end, when everything has been laid bare, Jonah says, before I repent, I'll die. I would rather perish than repent. And he's hurled over the side of the sea. Now, why in the world wouldn't God just let Jonah go and say, Jonah, you made your bed. You got to sleep in it. Why would God go through the process of restoring this prophet? Why not just raise up another prophet? There are plenty of prophets in the Old Testament. Why couldn't God just 
work in somebody else's heart, summon that person to go and do what Jonah didn't want to do, and just let Jonah perish. Why not do that? And the answer is this. There's only one answer, and that is God's loyal love, God's loving compassion. And that's the third thing we see in the book. God does what he does in Jonah's life for the very same reason he does what he does in our life, because of loving compassion. And the loving compassion in verse 17 is found up in the word swallow up. God sent this fish, this great fish, large enough to accommodate Jonah. And the act of mercy, the loving compassion, is that God says to the fish, now when you find Jonah, here's what I want you to do. I want you to swallow him up. Now that sounds like a monstrous thing. But it actually becomes the means by which God delivers Jonah and the way that he saves Jonah from death. The word swallow up in the image is a very violent one. It occurs throughout your Old Testament, actually. This isn't the first time in our Bible that we see this sort of imagery of swallowing up. For example, it can convey the idea of being swallowed up by danger in Psalm 16, 19. It can, it, it can describe what happens when an enemy army comes and swallows up uh, the people that they're attacking in Jeremiah 51. It's used to describe what happens when a person dies. He is swallowed up by the grave in judgment in Exodus 15 and in number 16. People who rebel against God are swallowed up by the earth itself. Sinners are swallowed up in death in Job 24. And in Proverbs 1, in every case, the image of swallowing up in the Bible is used negatively in the Old Testament, except for this. This is the only place in our Old Testament where this image is positive. And it's positive because this is how God is going to deliver Jonah from death. This is how he is going to deliver Jonah from disobedience. And this is how he's going to deliver Jonah from spiritual service and ministry. Rather than letting Jonah be swallowed up by his self-righteous pride. Rather than letting Jonah be swallowed up by his self-righteous indignation and by his disregarding of God's word, God decided to swallow Jonah up. And you may feel that way from time to time. When God sends mercy to deliver you from you, it may not feel very much like mercy. The fish, the great fish that God sends your direction, when those gaping jaws open and you go in, you may feel like this is the very last thing a loving God should do. How in the world could a loving God heap this on top of everything else that has happened? And just remember when you're in that fish, you're probably not in the best condition to evaluate what is loving and what isn't about God. Jonah is in that fish because he's already made several bad judgments about God. He's already decided, God, you can't show mercy to those people. You're supposed to show mercy to these people and you have a covenant that, that, that sort of binds that up. Your covenant with David and your covenant with Moses and, and so you're supposed to show mercy over here, but you can't show mercy over here. And what Jonah forgot is that God had another covenant. He had a covenant with Abraham. And God said to Abraham, Abraham, your descendants are going to take my mercy 
to the ends of the earth. And Jonah forgot that. What have you forgotten when you judge God? When you decide and I decide that God's way isn't the right way and in our righteous indignation and in our self-justified way, we turn our back on the will of God and we justify whatever disobedience is going on in our life because God isn't acting the way God should act. And God says, I'm going to deliver you from all of that. And the deliverance seems like more judgment. You ever felt that way? It's like, God, have I washed my hands in vain? That's what the psalmist said. Have I, have, I, have I cleansed myself? Have I committed myself to be your servant in vain? This is what happens when, when people follow you. And I look over and the heathen aren't experiencing any of these things. The pagan sailors are, are on a calm sea. The Ninevites are about to repent and get all kinds of mercy. And here I am in the belly of a fish at the bottom of the ocean. And God says, Jonah, I'm putting you there. I'm swallowing you up because I love you. And I'm not going to leave you there. And that's the fourth thing that we see here in the text. God is in the business of graciously reorienting his prophet. And the fish is an important part of this. Notice how the text says, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. This portable classroom was a place where Jonah learned unforgettable lessons. And when God swallows you up to deliver you, he teaches you unmistakable, unforgettable lessons. Jonah learned a lesson about God's sovereignty, didn't he? Jonah had to learn who was in charge of Jonah. Jonah had to learn who was in charge of Jonah. And you have to learn, and I have to learn, who's in charge of me and who's in charge of you. This, this radically reoriented, reoriented Jonah's understanding of God's sovereignty. God is in charge of Jonah's mission, his ministry, his message, and his life. Here is a fish that belonged to God, and, and God decided to do something with the fish. And he tasked the fish to something that the fish had to do. How would you like to be a fish having to digest uh, this, this cranky prophet? It's like the fish going to God. God, are you sure about this? There's a lot more tasty morsels in this ocean than this crotchety old prophet who's pokey, and, and every time he opens his mouth, there's these verbal things that come out or don't come out. I want nothing to do. Can't you send me a nice pagan to eat? God says, no, 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 I, I'm appointing you to this task. And, and, and I'm kind of making fun of the fish, but the fish actually obeyed. And here's Jonah, who's also been appointed to a task and he has to learn that like the fish, he is not the creator, he is a creature. Created in God's image, and God has the right to do whatever he wants with his creation. And Jonah, if I decide I want to show mercy on a part of my creation, and I want you to go take that mercy to them, then that's my will. You aren't in charge. And you know, that's the greatest lesson that you could ever teach your kid. We spend a lot of time reading all kinds of books about how to raise kids, don't we? Some of you have shelves full of books on how to raise kids. And the number one thing you're burdened about is to tell them, you're not in charge. 
You're not in charge of you. And God's the number one thing to teach you is this. You're not in charge of you. Jonah had to learn an unforgettable lesson about God's sovereignty. He had to also learn an unforgettable lesson about God's severity. Jonah, it's a very serious thing when you disregard my word and you disobey my will. When you take the steering wheel and you decide, I'm going to drive this thing wherever I want to go and I'm certainly not going there, God says, okay, you need to understand something. When you drive, it gets really, really hard, really, really fast. There is a severity to all of this. No matter how you justify in your mind what you're doing and and no matter how you think you're right in your own eyes, when you do something that God asks you not to do or you don't do something that God asks you to do, this is a very serious matter and God deals with our disobedience in great severity. But he also needed to learn an unmistakable lesson about God's mercy. Jonah needed as much undeserved and unmerited mercy as the Ninevites did. And Jonah understood when he stood on that deck that he had two choices. I can repent and live. This is what Moses said. This is what the Torah taught. I can repent and live, or I can continue to resist, and the penalty for that resistance is death. And that's what he chose. So when he was hurled over the side, whatever else Jonah was thinking and whatever regrets he might have had, he understood that he deserved whatever was about to come. But when he got down to the very bottom of the ocean, what he found was mercy. What he found was mercy. And this is one of the biggest lessons in Jonah. Mercy is never merited. It is never fair. It is never just. There is justice behind it, but it is never fair. Mercy is never allocated on the basis of fairness. It was never allocated that way to you, and it will never be allocated that way to anybody else. And Jonah had to learn, and God had to graciously reorient the way that Jonah thought. And there's a final thing that we see in this text, and that is this. There is redemptive instruction for us. There is all of this that God is doing in Jonah's life. There is this deliverance, right? There is this compassion. There is this intervention. There is this reorientation going on in Jonah. But as we look at this lesson, there is something that God wants us to learn. There is redemptive instruction. And it comes back to the idea of being swallowed up. Remember I said everywhere you look in the Old Testament, this imagery, being swallowed up, is negative. This is how God saves us from judgment. You say, well, how in the world can God save us from judgment? He saves us from judgment through judgment. He saves us from judgment through... You say, what do you mean by that, Pastor? All right. When Jonah was swallowed up in that great fish and he was taken down to the bottom of the ocean, what did you expect the outcome to be if you hadn't read the book? There's there's no coming back from that. 
This is God's divine severity. This is God's displeasure on the disobedience of this prophet. And he didn't just throw him into the ocean. He swallowed him up in a fearsome sea creature to, 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 to judge him. But by the end of the story, Jonah is vomited up on dry land and he's alive. So how did he survive? And and on what basis did God bring about that deliverance? 750 years later after Jonah, another prophet would come and he would be swallowed up in death. And he would remain in the darkness of a tomb for three days and three nights, the exact amount of time that Jonah was in the dark and in the deep. And on the third day, that tomb would not hold because death could not hold the God of heaven who came, was incarnated, and became one of us so that death could swallow him up. And the Apostle Paul brings all of this to bear when he says this, death is swallowed up in what? Victory. Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory over death through Jesus Christ our Lord. How did Jonah get delivered from his trouble? The answer was because somebody wasn't delivered from his. Jonah got delivered from death because Jesus wasn't delivered from death. Jesus actually died. And because he died, that death conquered death. That death, theologians describe this way, it was the death of death. When Jesus died, death also died. It was the end of death. And that's true for us. Now, let's close as we wrap this up with this. So what am I supposed to do with all this? This is great, Pastor. This is the bridge, you know, from death to life, from disobedience to submission. So how am I, what am I supposed to do with this? Can I just give you five quick thoughts and then we'll pray and we'll be dismissed this morning? Number one, a text like this reminds us that God will never abandon us to our sin. God will never abandon us from our sin. This is what Deuteronomy 31 says. This is what Hebrews 13, 5 says. God will never leave us. He will never disengage. He will never abandon us. He will never forsake us. He will never abandon us to our sin. Number two, the end of all sin is death. Somebody has to pay a penalty. So when you get mercy, don't ever for a minute think that God abdicated his justice. The mercy you get came... Because somebody else got judgment. And we just talked about who that is. Number three, God might be silent, but he is never absent. You may think God isn't around. You don't see him. You don't hear him. You read your Bible. You don't get anything out of it. You pray. It's like the heaven is silent, but God is never absent. And we can see this all throughout the storyline of Jonah. Appearances are not always what they seem when God is involved. You and I would never have imagined to meet Jonah again. 
Appearances are not always what they seem with God. And then finally, judgment. Deliverance from judgment oftentimes comes through judgment. One of the greatest texts in our New Testament is this, for our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. How did that happen? We were delivered from judgment through the judgment that fell on Christ. So no matter where you are, no matter what you've done this morning, no matter what you think you've lost, there is a way back. Jonah found it. The Ninevites found it. And this morning, I want to encourage you to find it. Because the God of Jonah is your God. Lord, we thank you for your work in this text in our life. We thank you, Lord, for the gracious intervention, the loving compassion, the divine sovereign instruction, the reorientation that you do in our lives when we allow the discipline you bring into our life to have its full work in us. And Lord, we're grateful for the redemption that made all of this possible. Lord, if you had not come and gone to the cross and tasted death fully, Jonah would never have been delivered from that fish. And we would never have been delivered from our sins. And so we want to thank you today for your grace and your goodness. And we want to celebrate what you're doing in our life with receptive hearts. In Jesus' name. Amen.